0: Artificial intelligence is here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Daniel Lopez. This is the AI Education Conversation, where we explore the opportunities, risks, and the impacts of AI across education. Let's jump in. What's up, everyone? With the summer season to hold conversations and strategize around AI, I continue to wonder how schools, districts, and universities will use AI this upcoming school year. How will AI usage and the potential for AI be different than it was last school year? In today's episode, really excited to chat with computer science and entrepreneurship student at the University of Pennsylvania, Ashka Vishwanath. Beyond her impressive knowledge of AI tools, Ashka shares her perspectives on the AI opportunity as a higher education student as she returns to UPenn in the coming weeks. Before we jump into my conversation with Ashka, let's jump into a few AI updates. First and foremost, Los, Ange- Los Angeles Unified School District is implementing AI. They will be implementing an AI chatbot next school year called ED. Superintendent Alberto Carvario announced an AI chatbot is intended to program, uh, it, it is programmed to tell parents about their child's grades, test scores, and attendance. I like this use case. I think from my perspective, when I think about the size of a district like LA Unified Schools. I know I used to work in Houston ISD where we had about 45 high schools and a whole lot, a whole bunch more middle schools and elementary schools. Houston ISD was also a very diverse school district as LA USD is a larger school district and equally as diverse. I think having some AI chatbots, I can imagine really programmed to communicate and talk to parents in this way. I can I can imagine how this type of use case Provides potential to really be able to connect with the community, especially if there's different languages there and you may not have the staff on hand to be able to connect with uh, folks in that community. It also allows folks to be able to connect with the chatbot and ask questions when they need it versus during school hours. And so I think the accessibility of a chatbot like Ed and what LAUSD is planning to use overall feels like a really big win for the school district. I also think it works really well for LAUSD and it feels like a really great use case because based on a lot of what we've learned recently around model drift, it feels like this particular use case avoids sharing subjective information. It sh- it, it avoids sharing information that is too far away from just basic facts around grades, test results, attendance, information about the school district, yet it takes that job off of somebody's plate. I think the other thing I really enjoy about this use case is it starts to get us away from this plagiarism convo, which I know is, is where so many school districts have spent a lot of time. Um, but again, it, it really just continues to expand our thinking to showcase how school districts can use AI tools, not just within the classroom for academic means. You can also use it to support a lot of those administrative, those auxiliary services that are just as vital to bringing a school community to life. And AI clearly has the potential to be able to support with some of those pieces. An Iowa school system is using AI software to scan and vet books that potentially could be banned from school libraries. The move by the Mason City School Board is in response to a new state law, which require books at schools to be age-appropriate and without descriptions or visual despi- de- depictions of a sex act. Some popular titles that they've already been include The Color Purple, No Why the Cage Bird Sings, and The Kite Runner. You know, from my perspective, I think this brings up really interesting questions around censorship, as well as the political leanings of AI large language models. I know that a lot of these models, when they've done uh, done ana- analyses of the political biases of some of these uh, models that operate popular AI tools, oftentimes they found find that they are left leaning or you know, kind of on the left. Uh, but I think overall, what this brings up for me is this really interesting question of to what extent do we act, should we actually be using AI to support us with subjective type regulating? Um, in this case, again, banning books, right? Especially in an instance where folks are banning books from a list, may not have ever read the book before, just taking the word of an AI tool to be able to do that. And there is there potentially could be a little bit more sub- subjectivity in that decision versus something that for me feels a little bit more objective which is when you're using it for, say, visual detection purposes or identification, such as in the use case of zero eyes, which we highlighted a few episodes ago, where when they're looking at the cameras and they have the AI models, they're looking for someone that has a gun, yes or no, right? There's a lot less subjectivity in that visual detection. So something to continue to think about, schools are obviously finding really interesting use cases to implement and to adopt AI tools to be able to accomplish some of their unique needs. Let's transition to a study and some new indicators around the workforce and what the future of the workforce may have for us here. So prior to to the November launch of ChatGPT, only 7.7% of LinkedIn users claimed that they had AI skills, but within the last seven months, that number has almost doubled. According, this is according to a LinkedIn report cited by Axios. Over the past five years, head of AI positions among U.S. LinkedIn members have surged by 264%. Some additional context here, compared to January, the frequency of terms like prompt engineering, prompt crafting, generative, generative artificial intelligence, and in LinkedIn profiles has surged 15 uh, times in the United States. There's also a nine-fold surge in workers reporting AI skills. LinkedIn's chief economist, Corinne Kimborg, told Axios that the spike in profiles citing AI skills is largely a response to market demand, given a 21-fold increase in job postings mentioning AI. If we zoom out a little bit further here, recently uh, IBM released a survey which highlighted that 40% of surveyed executives believe that their staff will require reskilling due to AI and automation adoption over the next few years here. And overall, that survey uh, highlights that this could involve 1.4 billion individuals of the global workforce of 3.4 billion that are impacted in some way by AI tools. All of these insights here were reported by Insight AI. Overall, what I think this really continues to reiterate for me is that I think in particular for white collar industries, we're going to see a pretty drastic change over the next few years in, in, in a lot of different industries around expectations for what the workforce is being asked to do related to AI, potentially uh, to positions that are outsourced, positions that are that go away altogether, or positions that emerge because of these AI tools that now exist we're obviously, we're, we are still within the, the initial calendar year. From my perspective, I really continue to consider January as the the boom period, though I know that uh, ChatGPT released in November. But if we really take the timeline here as like January, where it really started to pop off to August, we're not even through a full calendar year yet of a lot of these tools that have been implemented and they continue to evolve. They continue to be integrated into a lot of the products that we use. So as industries continue to really understand and create a vision for where they really think these AI tools do help their industries and give them a competitive edge versus where they don't, I think it's going to really become clearer for us around how we need to be preparing our young people for the workforce. I think in in the in the short term, one of the best things we could all be doing is really exploring these AI tools, learning how to use them, really understanding their capabilities, understanding how to do prompts, right? under Playing around with prompts, using a lot of different tools, and just familiarizing ourselves because we never know within the context of our own roles if we may be called to use AI a little bit more than what we had to do last calendar year. All that to say, let's jump to my conversation with Ashka. Ashka has had extraordinary experiences leveraging AI to improve education through her work at UPenn and her YouTube channel, Academy AI. Implementing AI into educational institutions is going to require work, and it's gonna require planning. But many of the use cases that Ashka highlights show why the opportunity is worthwhile. Ashka is the first student we've ever had on the AI education conversation. She gets to hold that belt. Her insights as to how her peers, her campus community are talking about AI, really helpful to dig into as we launch another school year here in the United States. Many schools, districts, universities, everybody's still planning for a world with AI. Beyond the practical advice that Ashka offers, she provides a treasure trove of insights on her YouTube channel, and I would also definitely highly uh, recommend anybody checking it out after checking out this episode in our conversation. As always, let me know what you think about today's conversation at the AI Ed Convo on X. Curiosity opens doors, connections build bridges, learning paves the way, humans are the heart of AI education. I'll see you next week. Ashika Vishwanath, welcome to the AI Education Conversation. I'm really excited to have you today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, very excited to be here Um, and excited to have a conversation about AI, AI education, everything in between.
0: Perfect. Uh, Ashika, I, I have to admit to you, as we we kind of kick off here, you're, you are you uh, are taking home the title um, for the episodes that I had for the first student who's come on to the AI education conversation that I've had a conversation with. So really excited okay. to just hear from you. You obviously hold such a critical perspective as we think of all of the things that are coming up related to AI, because it's very important that we're talking to students and, and know your experience related to AI, AI tools. And the potentials and possibilities. And I'm really excited that you get to hold that title, as I said, for mm-hmm. the first student on. So let's kind of start there. I, as I mentioned, I already alluded to our audience a little bit here. You're actually a cur- current student at the University of Pennsylvania. You're pursuing degrees in computer science and en- engineering entrepreneurship. You're also an aspiring computer scientist. So you know a whole lot more about AI than I even do, which I'm really <laughs> excited about. Um And you also mentioned on your LinkedIn that Your mission is to make the world a better place for humanity through the art and science of artificial intelligence. You've actually already done so a lot through the founding of um, AI Academy, Academy AI, um, Mm -hmm. a YouTube channel that you have on AI with a whole lot of subscribers and a whole uh, really big audience. So uh, my first question, which you don't have to answer, is where do you sleep? When do you sleep, I should say. (laughs) But really, the larger question is, how'd you end up here? You know, where'd your spark for AI come from?
1: Yeah. So. I think it started uh, early on in high school. Um, I was in AP Computer Science, uh, which is, I think, one of the two computer science schools that my my high school had. Um, so I was super excited to kind of dive into a structured CS curriculum through that class. Um, as I was taking it, I, I really started to enjoy the art of coding, um, kind of how you can write these lines of code and translate that into into some um, action that the machine does that is much faster, more accurate, more efficient than than anything a human can do. So that aspect of CS just really caught my attention. Um, and one of the things that I, I noticed um, as I was looking for online courses, just to deepen my understanding about like the computer science field, is this course, uh, Machine Learning by Andrew Ng. Um, and that course, I so I, I I looked into that. I was really curious what machine learning was at that time. I I didn't really know too much about it, and I think AI wasn't as huge of a thing as it is right now. Uh, back then, this was about like five five years ago, um, and so it was definitely it was definitely pervasive. But obviously, my school didn't teach AI. Uh, we didn't really have any clubs at school around AI machine learning. Uh, So the only resource was through online courses. So I started taking this course and it was just incredibly interesting. And I like the fact that you can kind of build a machine that is not rule-based, but rather um, can improve on itself with more training and the more data you give it, um, how it can learn on its own. I just thought that was like an incredible um, kind of innovation and step forward for our society. And I just started thinking about all of the applications that could come out of a technology like this, um, this predictive technology, kind of across all these different fields. Um, and so that course really, really was my like start to a deep dive into to AI and machine learning. So um, after kind of going through that course, uh, I started to, to take more courses. I enrolled in a um, program called Inspirit ai which was led by stanford and mit uh grads as well as students um and and just did a lot of things self-learning self-exploration outside of class um and then i one important thing that i realized as i was um kind of doing the exploration was this idea of uh, like bias and ethics in ai and as we kind of implement more of these technologies within the different aspects of society um there are so many nuanced ways that things could go wrong if if people don't know enough about um bias and kind of this ethical aspect um whether it's like discriminatory ai or ai just not trained on good data and so i wanted to kind of bring that back to my school um because i was i I tried talking to some of my friends about these topics and it wasn't it wasn't too well known uh, within within my my peer community. So that inspired me to start the AI club at my school, which was kind of my first um, venture into uh, forming a, a community around uh, my interest for AI and kind of the growing um, the, the growing importance of AI. And so with the success of that club, um, that's what inspired me to launch my my YouTube channel to reach a wider audience. Um, so I initially started that during my uh, during kind of like COVID COVID time because I was at home a lot, um, and I love content creation. So uh, that's kind of where that started. That that took off, um, did really well, and I really enjoyed kind of seeing the tangible impact that my videos were having through all of the like LinkedIn. Um, connect requests and and the notes I would get from different people throughout the world saying that it kind of helped them with building the technology that they were trying to develop. Um, and then thereafter is is where my, my book came. So I wanted to create kind of a comprehensive guide um, that would help people begin their journey in AI. Because for me personally, I didn't really have much of a structured um, learning uh, path towards like gaining more knowledge in AI. And I kind of wanted to take all my learnings, put it into a book and teach like concept by concept, what I thought was, um, were the most important aspects of AI. Um, so yeah, that's kind of uh, what I've kind of the outreach that I've done in terms of artificial intelligence. And since I've gotten to Penn, um, my interests and my growth in CS and AI have uh, definitely only grown stronger. Um, I, I've joined several clubs, I'm currently the executive vice president of a uh, the Warden Data Analytics Club, um, and just doing more kind of uh, outreach as well as research and uh, courses, and and just learning about the field in more depth. So yeah, it's kind of the the path that I've taken.
0: Wow, Ashika, you're you're doing so much, and I'm definitely curious to hear a little bit more about your book later on. But let's actually start with you, Pen. I know that um, you know just in my own experience uh, doing research in in artificial intelligence and education, that mm-hmm. in some ways feels feels like it's, it's one of the larger hubs we have in the United States around and education. I know professor Ethan Malik, who has been, been really a thought leader in this field also is, you know, at UPenn as well. Uh, But, you know, obviously being in college last year at UPenn, this must have been a really exciting time for you, right? Because you're going from five years ago, you're the only person talking about AI because you found this YouTube video and you're kind of this trailblazer in your community to now a lot more people, a lot more communities are really talking about artificial intelligence That being said, we also know that higher education institutions were, uh, from my perspective, they appeared to be like a lot of the educational institutions in the last six months that really ramped up their usage in AI, in particular with students. But that being said, I'm really just curious to hear your perspective. Um, Outside of your CS class, which I would imagine is you know the early adopters if you're looking at the like broader UPenn community or just in the spaces that you are uh, kind of navigating at UPenn did you notice like a type of AI boom amongst your peers amongst the university as a whole um uh, kind of at the institution
1: yeah um so i think kind of well i would i would think the same how kind of the cs courses are will be early adopters but actually in my school it turns kind of the opposite um we my the cs classes that i was enrolled in um throughout my freshman year had a strict um like no no like chat GPT or any any uh, generative AI technology to to help us with anything. um it was a very very strict policy that our that the sys department has enforced. Um, but I think it's definitely such a wide um spectrum of with just within Penn how professors uh, kind of view this adoption of generative AI um for example, the professor that you named Ethan Malik, um uh, he actually like strongly recommends um, Wharton's, so he teaches a Wharton class, uh, Wharton students to use AI. Um, I, I think he even, like in his in his syllabus, he has a kind of uh, a, a section, a whole section dedicated to how um, students like must use, like he requires ChatGPD to be used in his assignments. Um, but I think what's really cool about what he does is that he kind of integrates learning about how to use these technologies within um, the course. So he's like published tutorials on Canvas, which is the site where all the teachers publish um, their content. Um, He has tutorials on how to, how to use it well. Um, And he also provides uh, cautionary um, notices on where it could not perform as well as what he expects to see in assignments. Um, And also I think it's just, in my opinion, um teachers who do things like that, which is it's not too common at penn yet um most of the most of the professors kind of uh, like not they don't allow students to to use this technology. but I think the thing is whether or not teachers allow it, students use it to some capacity or another just because it's it's so prevalent and it's it's known to be just very helpful. So I think rather than trying to push this idea of we we can't really use this technology, I think it's much more effective to take an um take uh steps like what Ethan Malik did, where he sets boundaries, but he also um coaches us on how to use it well um and embraces the technology. And I think that is much more effective than than preventing it. So I, I I'm really looking forward to see Penn kind of taking this, um, approach of, um, of, of guiding us in using it. Well, producing tutorials, um, having assignments that allow us to use different aspects of our human intelligence that may not be able to, um, be done with chat GPT, obviously it's, it's very creative and all of those aspects, but I think there are, there are still, um, merits to, to what humans can do, Um, that cannot be done with the technology. And I think honing in on those aspects and kind of tailoring the assignments to um, accept that we will use GPT for some things, but also trying to find out what, where our um, perspectives come in and where our emotions and our intelligence with the course comes in um, is something that that uh, my school and and other schools I feel like should, should really work towards. Um, and another note, I guess, kind of answering your your question about noticing an AI boom, I think where I really notice it in my school is is not really with respect to using the the generative AI technology, because um, that's there, but more so with the number of AI courses that my school offers now, as um, in comparison to just even a couple years back, it's like an exponential growth, and I think that's just really it's really cool, and it's really helping us as students um, who are interested in learning about these technologies uh, take a structured approach with professors who have experience. For example, we have like big data analytics, we have um, natural language processing courses, text analytics, uh, machine learning, AI obviously, and uh, the AI concentration that we're allowed to to kind of um, hone in on is is also helping. Um, And I know that in 2022, Venture capitalists, um, they started investing. Like the 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 amount that they started investing in AI and generative AI just like spiked up. And so I think with the demand that the job market has now for um, AI skills, uh, having more courses in universities that teach those AI skills is is really beneficial. So that's that's one aspect that I um, have definitely seen kind of like boom.
0: Yeah, I think your perspective is so interesting. I think initially, what I'm what I'm a little bit surprised about is the fact that even at a at a university that is as uh, well resourced and progressive and as, as UPenn, there are still professors who very similar to what happened nationally, right? That really had to say, this isn't going to be allowed to be used in my classroom. I have to hit pause, I, ha- I really have to understand what this is. It's like banded till further notice, rather than. Really, as 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 you mentioned, Professor Ethan Mollicks and some other early adopters might have done, really pushed themselves to innovate and to determine to what extent can we use this technology in the classroom. So I would say that's surprising to me, yeah. um, but it's but it's also something that I know has happened a lot nationally, and I know that there are just other institutions that started off that way and have since changed their tune. So I do wonder if you know across the board that'll be happening at UPenn. The second thing that um, is not as surprising to me, but it but it points to a, to a really interesting dichotomy is this fact that. There's this rapid increase, as you mentioned, in like AI specifics courses at UPenn, mm-hmm. as well as just like an increased interest in there. I think what I get concerned about, and I think what you said earlier really resonates with me because it points to I think a larger point that I would also align with you on, which is like having a bunch of AI courses that teach you a bunch of technical skills, I think is really great. But I mm-hmm. also think if institutions feel like you can take all of your quote unquote like AI skills, knowledge, et cetera, and just put them in like five courses at your institution and like check Mm -hmm. off the box that you're doing it. I think there's a missed opportunity to integrate this technology across like the broader set of courses, right? And the broader set of experiences that students are taking because I think as you were saying earlier, AI, AI is revolutionary technology, which can and it really uh, flip the way that students are learning, not just in technology or computer science classes, but in every classroom, right? Um, mm-hmm. It is going to take some work for non-tech uh, savvy folks or folks who are not initially really mm-hmm. receptive to the, this technology to learn how to integrate it. Uh, but at least at the moment, from my perspective, it feels like the trade-off is worth it in this particular case. Um, that being said... I'm curious to hear just a little bit more of like, maybe, you know, over the last like six to seven months, like you're obviously somebody uh, coming in, you already kind of know the roadmap, right? For a lot of mm-hmm. folks who um, like where they're starting now and where they might be a year from now in terms of just their mindset, the way that they're learning technology, maybe the things that they're going to be initially the most receptive to compared to now. When this 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 like really big wave in dialogue started right at the beginning of the spring semester in January. Compared to where we are now, I know a lot of the national conversation as well was really around this like plagiarism, academic integrity um, and and a lot of the conversation focused there. I'm wondering if are you still seeing that pushback from, you know, certain spheres at UPenn or another, you know, uh, post-secondary spaces that you hold? Or are you starting to see more folks like having conversations, doing some planning, maybe increasing their optimism or increasing just like the overall dialogue that they're having? Is that the perspective changing at all?
1: So, just to understand your question, um, are you talking about kind of the perspective of like plagiarism, like not being as um, a big of a thing anymore?
0: Or yeah, let me let me clarify my question. So, I, I know that in in January, mm-hmm. it seemed like as we were talking about AI, most of the like mainstream dialogue related to this was a lot of schools and institutions banning school uh, tools like Chad GPT because of plagiarism yeah. concerns, because of academic right. integrity concerns. And then essentially it, it really just came out as like, well, these tools are not allowed to be used in class because of plagiarism. And it kind of like died there. Right. And then we have very progressive uh, professors such as Ethan Mullick or others who really took a right. step further to like understand the technology, try to find ways to innovate um, within the class. But I'm wondering, you know, that was a perspective in January. And I know yeah. that that, you know, throughout the semester, it, it kind of continued in certain ways, but I know that the 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 technology hasn't gone away. So that being said, given, you know, we're in August, we're about to start a new school year. Some some students have already started a new, new school That's year. Right. I'm wondering if the tune from some of those professors or from the institution as a whole might've changed a little bit where some professors are now willing, who initially said, hey, we're not using this at all in their classroom. We're saying it like, hey, I have this one assignment where we're going to try it in the classroom. And if the tune has just changed at all, and if you've maybe seeing a little bit of a, a, vibe change anywhere there.
1: Okay. Okay. I see. Yeah. Um, I think the, the thing that, that, um, so, so we've been on kind of summer break for, since, since may chat it, as you said, like spring, spring quarter, that was when it kind of boomed for everyone. Um, I think that I have not seen a dramatic switch from the professors who um like prohibited that uh from then until now and i think that's mainly because they have been used to like no technology no assistance no online help um for students for for 30 years 20 30 years of of their um, tenure and i think having just a couple months to adjust to this whole new environment um where chatgpt is so common and it's inevitable that people are using it is just a, it's just a pretty like drastic switch. And I think that's why I personally have not seen it within my professors. I think it takes a professor who is very forward thinking and already, um, already using the technology himself or herself um, to be able to kind of embrace this, that with that much, with that quick of a turnaround from not having um, allowed that before. Um, For example, I know some Wharton professors, it could be easier for them to to accept this change rather than the people in the CS department, just because ChatGPT is a technology itself, and they're teaching us how to build these technologies. And so they don't want us to, to kind of use technology to write the technology that they want us to write ourselves. Whereas Wharton, I feel like, is much more interdisciplinary, and there's a lot of ways that you know humans can use their knowledge from the courses, but have this technology supplement in in some ways. Rather than writing code for them, it could help them with some some portions of their financial analysis, or or guiding a startup pitch, or something like that. Um, I think ChatGPT still does give give answers, even for for business students, or for psychology students, or whoever. Um, but I think since I have most experience in the CS department and uh, they still haven't changed, I think that could be why. But I, I do hope that that next year I am able to see more professors um, embrace this technology. Um, school starts in, in about two weeks. So um, that's when I'll really be able to see kind of this during the fall, the fall semester how it's changed. And I think um, it could go either way. It could be where still the classes that I'm that I'm taking we're still not allowed to use it, which which I think is 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 not I feel like there could be a different way, as I as I mentioned before. Um, but it could also be where there, as you said, there are certain assignments that um, they allow us to try it on. And they kind of guide us through how we should use it properly and how we can really use it to help us rather than just give us the give us the answers. Um, so, so yeah, I guess I'll have to, I'll have to wait and see. Um, but that's, that's something I'm excited for. I'm excited to see how Penn transitions. Um, I still have three more years here. So, um, well, it'll be, it'll be interesting to, to kind of see this, um, the, the switch to, towards embracing these technologies after so many years of, if not
0: yeah totally and and i and again we can acknowledge as well upenn is obviously a school that has tens of thousands of students tons of different professors and resources right. so you know the spectrum across the board is going to be very nuanced and uh complex but i will say that your your broader observation around um the way that it has evolved since then i would say is like very true even on the like k-12 to public education side of this as well i've really seen that mm-hmm. very similar to what you've described it on the higher ed set there's this kind of initial set of early adopters. There now, are, There's now some folks that are kind of like dipping their toes in the water, right? A lot of that I think has happened through the peer effect or some of these like organizations, some of these like thought experts who've like now since emerged to try to do some of that work to really uh, get get in front of um, school leaders, get in front of teachers, get in front of educators and like trying to teach them and show them how this tool can like really help them and like kind of show them the dot to A to B, right? And really show them in a very clear way. as how it helps. But, you know, to that point, I think... We obviously have an opportunity here throughout the rest of this episode, so I'm going to really try to push on that and see if you can share with us some really cool use cases that you know folks who may not know too much about AI can really benefit from your perspective as somebody who has a really deep experience using these tools, building these tools, like really understanding what's under the hood of of some of these tools that we're playing with. So let's let's get into that a little bit more. So I know recently, um, the the reason that you're uh, uh, profile kind of got onto my radar here is because I know that you were recently in a in a generative AI hackathon. Um, at, mm-hmm. with a, a group, you know, folks on your team here uh, at Carnegie Mellon, you all had successfully generated kind of like a generative AI called Chat TA. I'd love mm-hmm. to hear a little bit more about this competition. What is Chat TA, and and what problem does it solve? Um, help folks understand how this AI is like solving a problem.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess I can start with, with what the competition is. So yeah, as you said, um, it's Carnegie Mellon university's, uh, generative AI, um, innovation incubator hackathon. Um, so there were three tracks. Um, the one I participated in with my team is the education and future of work track. And so, um, one thing that we noticed, um, is, is that, uh, when, when you look at courses, um, expensive courses, like. The ones offered in these universities, Um, they're about five thousand to seven thousand bucks per course. But when you invest that kind of money, um, what you get in return is this quality um, education with uh, personalized support. So we enjoy a teacher to student, um, TA to student ratio of about one to ten or one to five, which is really helpful because uh, when you're learning these difficult concepts, having someone to ask and clarify um, with immediate feedback is is very instrumental in our learning journey. Um, And we attest to that as we're students and TAs in our own universities. But we noticed how um, there are counterparts uh, of a lower expense um, to these courses online. Um, If we look at Coursera or edX, um, we see very similar courses, um, but lower cost for people who can't afford education, um, in the more expensive ways, but those, those people, um, either have no access to TAs or the, the ratio is like one to 400 or something like that. And that is honestly, it's pretty hard to learn that way when you're just kind of on your own and you're just thrown into something that is, is harder to understand and you don't have, you don't have support. And so we know that a lot of people can't afford. Um, we know that TA's time is really valuable. Um, you can't really manage 400 students being being a single TA. And there are a lot of problems associated with kind of this instability in, in support for, for a lot of students out there. Um, and so this is so, but we, we also recognize that this problem has been uh, attempted to be been solved uh, using AI solutions. So there's Jill Watson, developed by Georgia Tech, um, and they developed an AITA. Um, except Jill Watson's was, it was very rule-based. And so um, you kind of didn't have answers to complex queries that go beyond the the scope of exactly what it was trained on, which is not very helpful because students have a variety of questions, um, and then we have solutions like GPT-4, ChatGPT. Um, but those, as as you might you might know, you can't really ask it about um, slide twenty three on lecture ten because it just has no idea what that means, right? So it's not trained on a specific knowledge base. It's not trained on the course you are taking. And then we have solutions like Khanmigo, which is Khan Academy's um, kind of AITA. Um, but that solution doesn't have this aspect of continuous improvement. You kind of train it once, and then you a human uses it, but you can't really provide any feedback to the model. Um, and so this is where our solution chat TA comes into play. Um, chat TA is an in-house LLM-based um, TA backed by information retrieval on a vector database for prompt engineering, um, a fine-tuned LAMA2 with question and answer data, and uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback to improve the reward model and keep humans in the loop. So that's kind of the, the one line summary. Um, and if you'd like, I can kind of go into a bit about how we, we kind of developed this um, at, a, at a high level um, and as well as kind of touching on how it solves the, the, the aspects that previous solutions weren't able to.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into that because I think you used a whole lot of technical CS yeah, words yeah. there, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page of what that means. So first, you want I want to just mention you mentioned it's a, it's an LLM. So just for like everyone who's listening to this, right? M- LLM, large language model. It's essentially kind of like the model. That is like the the back end of of, of these like AI uh, that they're trained on. And sometimes that could be like directly connected to an internet or like a, and or sometimes it could be connected to like some type of data set, right? Or information mm-hmm. set. Am I am I describing that correctly, Ashka? I mean you're you're gonna know better than I am.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was um that was that was good. So it, it's basically like GPT-4 is an LLM. So it's basically um a model that can be trained on text data and that mm-hmm. can generate text on its own. Um, so that's the that's the crux of LLMs, um, and so yeah, I can I can definitely go into kind of break down what I said. So for our pipeline, um, we basically collected instructional materials from courses to build a database, um, and so this is uh, where the knowledge base comes in, where we have a TA that is trained on for a specific course, or in our case, two courses. So we we had an intro course and a high level CS course, both from CMU. Um, and so when a question, sorry, when a student asks a question um, on whatever question question answering platform they're using. Um, so that could be like, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Piazza or Ed, um, those are just platforms that, that are often used for, for their forums basically. Um, And so whenever a student asks a question, the question gets embedded as a query in our database. And so embedded is basically, it becomes um, to a vector form. So you take uh, human text and translate it into numerical form as a vector. Um, And so we retrieve the most uh, relevant document to augment our prompt. Augment our prompt is basically like, so... Uh, for example, if we're if we're asking um, what is the 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 capital of um, France, um, the student is asking that question, but we have a course, and in that course, the the capital of France um, happens to be uh, Rome, for example. Okay, which which a model would not be able to answer without having information based on that specific course where the answer is um, different than, it might be different than what it is outside. So that's the that's the purpose of having a knowledge base is to, to have the answer be from the exact source that the student wants. So when we have that capital France is Rome um, from the knowledge base, it's gonna take that document and use, uh, I don't know how technical to get here, but it uses like cosine similarity to, say that this question that we asked is most similar to this aspect of the document that says the capital of france is rome and so we take that embed it before our prompt um, as a vector and and so now we send the prompt augmented query to the model so now we're not just sending what is the capital of france but we're also sending this idea of the capital of france is rome before the prompt. Um, on the back end. And so that's how we're integrating the knowledge base. Um, So so I'll stop there for now. Does that that first part?
0: Yeah, I think so. If I'm understanding correctly, a difference between the tool that you have developed versus again some of these larger models. So right now, some of the most popular models out there that are that exist, they're directly connected to the internet, right? And so to to, to the initial point that you made, if I'm a student taking a course anywhere, whether it's an online course on a Corsetta or an in person course at a UPenn, right? Often there's there's going to be very specific. N- contextual knowledge from that course, from specific slides, specific terms, specific statements that are being made, right. and if if uh, a model is being trained on the broader internet, it's not going to have this like very nuanced uh, context based on this data set that we have from the uh, a model that was directly created for this particular course or the set of courses that a student can ask. Right. So if they're like, "Hey, and and you know, Mr. Lopez's lecture on this day." He was bringing up this concept. Can you explain it to me like I'm a five year old, right? And then it's able to do that because it has that very specific data set. Um, just to get uh, dip my toe in this technical a little bit here, um, I could also uh, understand how your model might actually solve a problem that I've been hearing a little bit about recently, which is this idea of drift. I've heard a little bit about um, recently in a lot of articles how. Uh, models such as GPT-4, uh, a lot of folks are typing things into chat GPT and noticing some of the like analysis abilities that it had compared to a few months ago is is like a, actually not as good as it used to be. Um, and then I, I recently saw that some folks believe that that is because of something called model drift. My understanding of what that means is essentially that over time, when you are training your model in a certain way, but there's so much information because you're taking something as complicated and overwhelming as the internet in it, it is the model essentially may not be able to keep up with the information source. And as a result, like it can lead to like it giving bad information. And so I can imagine like in a very static course, like with the model that you have, like we're designing a very specific model for this very specific course for this very specific mission, how something like that could actually solve a very big problem for students, which is to just to to reduce the caseload, right. Of like students who get a little bit more personalized help. They're able to ask some questions and you know that they're going to get a right answer because there is a finite uh, source of information and likely there's like a finite set of questions that they're going to have, right? Likely they're not going to be asking some of these out there, uh, far out there questions that cause yeah. some of these other general models to hallucinate because it's it's likely going to be related to this like very clear finite set of information. So um, is am I uh, like breaking that down uh, pretty accurately?
1: Yeah, yeah, that that that's that's pretty accurate. Um, one thing I will add is that uh, for for GPT and things, um, they aren't directly connected to the internet. Um, that's usually done through APIs, which is why GPT um, data is cut off, twenty twenty one. Um, but they are trained on the data from the internet. So someone has kind of co- collected this massive amount of data and fed it in but it's it's not really a real time connection um which is also why i think a model like this could could be really helpful because um as you said like we have the control to uh collect specific data that we can actively continue to feed into the model um, and it's very focused data so um sim- similar to the to the drift problem that you said um there won't really be that problem because we're we're kind of controlling what is fed in and we're making sure and this is also a good way to kind of Prevent this like bias aspect because we can, um, we train it on sp- data that we know uh, is is factual and objective, um, and and I think so so that's that's the first part. Um, the second part is uh, we're using Llama two, um, which has recently just been kind of open sourced by by Meta. Um, and this is a state of the art model. Um, it's an open source model that you can host on your own server, um, so you don't have to risk sending your your private data, your private course data to OpenAI. Um, for example, right now, um, I don't know if you've you've checked out Code Interpreter, um, GPT GPT four. Um, it's just like a premium version, um, but you have the option to upload a upload a CSV file or um, a PDF or something. Um, but it goes to to the internet basically like once you once you upload it um open ai has has uh control over whatever you just uploaded and so with using something like chat ta um you don't have that risk of of it being on the internet it's still within your control um and so we we kind of fine tuned that pre-trained llama model with um question and answer data we collected so so basically we have um a slew of, of QA pairs. Um, TA says, or sorry, Student asks, asks a question, a TA answer. Um, student asks another question, a TA answers. We have um, 10K pairs of these. We tr- uh, fed it into the LAMA2 model um, in order to make it more attuned to how the teacher and student interaction will look like, um, whether it's how long the the TA answer should be, um, what tone it should be, what style, um, because all of the all of these things are things that can really impact a student's a student's learning. Um, if they're really used to kind of one way of um, getting responses, or if they have a particular um, TA who's been very helpful, or a style of teaching, um, this model can replicate that using the the fine tuned Llama two. So that's where that really helps, and I think it's it's pretty important that that a student isn't subject to to vastly different um teaching styles or um speaking text styles um, and so and then the last component of our model is this idea of reinforcement learning with human feedback so this is where uh we keep humans in the loop um and i think this is um the the term humans in the loop is, is is very common nowadays how a lot of technologies just want this component integrated, um, because as we as we go on to generative AI, machines learning on their own, becoming more intelligent, um, we still want a way for for humans to have control over the models. And reinforcement learning is is a wonderful way to do that. So basically, we we have options for for students to, um, to provide feedback to the model whether they liked it. The, they like the teaching style they didn't like it they want to provide some feedback on the ta side we have um, three buttons at the bottom of our interface for accept reject or um, edit so the ta can accept the answer that the model gave if it was right reject it or add some edits and then we send that back to the back end which helps the model improve um, so did that did that kind of clarify a little more in depth about the three kind of components of our of our solution
0: yeah it did and I mean I think to to your last point about the uh you know the the um the reinforcement learning I think from my perspective I think that's really like one of the big differentiators between like AI in general right and really why I think so many folks are excited with this technology right because if it and so if I'm understanding correctly you you described the reinforcement learning in within chat TA as like something where you were like asking folks and or giving them opportunities to give feedback. But technically, like wouldn't every single exchange and dialogue also be like feedback that like makes the model like smarter, like and really like really understand like what folks are wanting. So as an example in your, your earlier example, if it was if I was if I was asking it what's the capital of Paris and it it, it, it said Rome. Right, even if I'm not giving it feedback, I, could I not then say like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure it's not Rome, and then it said, oh, actually, like you're right, it's Paris, right? And mm-hmm. then e- wouldn't it wouldn't it learn from that dialogue, even if I'm not like later filling like clicking a button or then saying, um, you know, I'd like to submit some feedback that you know the the initial capital gave was incorrect. That's kind of like something that artificial intelligence is able to do, right? It's like with every single uh, prompt uh, exchange that it has with somebody, it's taking those and then like f- it's it's fine tuning uh its answers and it's in the way that it's it's communicating answers based on the exchanges it's having. Is that is that correct even with your model as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's right. So I think that's um I think one of the, the main differences is like when you're given when you're given a, a TA solution like this, um like a student often doesn't doesn't know if if the answer is right or not. And so having an easy kind of interface for for them to um let the model know if they like the teaching style or not and for us to train the model to understand when you hit this button that means that this like some aspect of the way that the answer was given is incorrect is something that um, it it doesn't you'll have to train it a bit more to understand in that particular way um, but I think in general, the idea that um, when someone provides feedback saying no this is incorrect, uh, that is kind of you're giving it a, a negative reward and it is taking that into account and getting better next time. Um, and that's kind of the the crux of of machine learning itself. Um, but I think re- reinforcement learning in particular um, means that you're specifically giving the model positive or negative feedback, um, which is just a more specific aspect of something you can do on the back end with um AI. But yeah. you're right. In general, like when you respond with some feedback, it takes that into account and learns.
0: Yeah. And I think just from what I've learned thus far, I think that is so, so valuable within education as a whole because oftentimes one of the biggest challenges, I think, especially as an educator, is feedback. Right. right. It's like being able to like number one, take feedback from your students and then be able to adopt that on the fly because you're dealing with a lot of different students on a lot of different things, and right. you may also be handling so many. And then also from a student perspective, I know I'm, we've all had that class before where we were working really hard, and then we didn't hear one time from a teacher like one thing we could have done better throughout the entire semester or year. And that's mm-hmm. that's a missed opportunity, right? Because I think mm-hmm. ultimately, if we're in a class, if we're investing our time to complete a certain task, the hope is that we can get some kind of feedback on that. And so it sounds like there's an uh, with with you know this model. And then I think the other thing that really stands out to me about you know the 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 product that you all created is you know I think we've all heard over the last year the the fact that education is being an education in particular K to 12 public education this has probably been one of the most challenging seasons you know that that have, that's probably ever existed in terms of trying to be a teacher really from you know 2019 2020 the pandemic until now and to, and then there's so many folks that are leaving the field that it's now meaning there's tons of substitute teachers in classrooms or there's shortages where you're throwing three to four different classes of students into a cafeteria with just a couple of people because right. the ratios of trying to support students are so high. And I can imagine that it's very, very hard for learning to continue in, in particular K-12 setting when you have, let's say, 50, 60 students now compared to mm-hmm. just one teacher. But having something like this where you can maybe make smaller groups with the students who are generally like – pretty proficient or maybe understand and just need a little bit of help. Then you take the students who need a lot of help and you put them with the teacher that now is making that caseload smaller. And so being it, I see a lot of like use cases on uh, the K to 12 size as well. And there's a real opportunity here, right. To be able to use Mm -hmm. that technology to, to make lives easier there. So I'm curious, I mean, to, um, to transition just this a little bit here. Thanks for sharing, um, you know, about your project. I'm curious, like, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time, doing research in AI, doing research in the opportunities exist, like, like paint the picture for us a little bit. Like what are some of the most like exciting use cases or opportunities that like you see out there, either that currently do exist, like you, you think the technology that like we have today can actually do to make like the world a better place, or like, you think we're like not far away from, like, what are some of the things that, um, you know, like we should be knowing about or things that like, you know, would help us to like really understand how this technology can make the world a better place.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, as as we've been discussing, education is a huge part of it. Um, just the the idea that it can be used to create these like personalized learning uh, materials and activities, and um, kind of be able to generate practice problems and generate exams. And um, I think all of those like, education is is in my opinion kind of the most important part of of a person's um, kind of path towards. Whatever they want to do later on, and I think as we get this technology to aid more and more with that learning process, there are so many um, so many doors that can open for people who previously maybe didn't have access to to good education or or need needed the extra support that they that they didn't get. Um, for example, a very large public school, kind of exactly like what you were saying. So I think those aspects um, are definitely like very. Um, they will change how we how we look at education in the future and and how um, kids can really learn better so that's definitely something that comes to mind really quickly. Um, another thing is I don't know if this is making the world a better place but it's definitely it's definitely a very cool thing um, so I'm an artist and um, I, I used to participate in a lot of competitions that uh, related to like we would be given a theme and we should come up with um, kind of a an idea for a painting, and then and then paint it. And I think um, one of the things that I always wished was like I wish I had someone to like bounce ideas off of and get inspiration, like an un- unlimited source of inspiration. And I think art and design is another use case of generative AI that um, it's really gonna it's gonna transform it. And I think what's really cool about this specific aspect is that AI. Um, can't really take over physical drawing. Like it can't come to life and create an oil painting um, or it can't come to life and and create a sculpture. I mean, unless you have a robot that does it. But I think that's that's quite far and it might not be a kind of a good use of uh, like resources. But I think humans still have a lot of um, control and power over what ultimately gets created. But this idea that, um, generative AI can come up with so many different cool ideas. Um, merge, merging different styles of art, merging um, different kinds of things that have been produced before, um, is is a very. It'll be a transformative um, aspect for the the art community, um, and I think also this idea of like Midjourney and um, like Dolly and these things that can just create digital digital forms of art. Um, now we have so much access to um, things that we don't have to pay like royalty for. Um, previously, we could use like creative commons um, or other things like that, but they would often be lower quality images. So this kind of expands the, the area of like social media and kind of media generation. Um, how, how we can produce these images that cater to our exact needs and kind of attract the attention of specific audiences. Um, I think that's, it'll, it, it already is super cool. And I think that'll only grow the use of um, these art generation technologies. Um, and then the other thing that comes to mind is customer service. So this, and this is also where I think, um, Potentially some jobs could be displaced, um, which has its pros and cons um, so customer service there are so many so many bots nowadays that can especially with generative AI and how well it can answer and simulate a human's um, kind of mode of speaking um, and it's trained on so much data so you can train it on your entire company's history and your' Your website, all the the queries that have come in in the past, and and the model can kind of and it it reduces time of human training, um, or or it takes away the aspect of human emotion, um, which I know affects a lot of customer service people because sometimes they're quite angry um, customers. Um, so I think this is another field that is definitely getting impact right now, impacted, and it'll, it'll only grow from here. It's, it's hard to say what the job landscape will look like, um, because of this, uh, it could be a takeover, but I think there is still always a place for humans. And there'll, there'll be this idea of like upskilling where humans will find what they need to improve on, um, in order to use this as a help rather than a replacement. Um, but so so yeah I think these are these are three of the the use cases that I feel like are pretty cool and it'll definitely um become more pervasive in society. And yeah. and sorry. Yeah. One oh, no, go ahead. about about this um So in terms of opportunities, I think apart from all of these use cases, one of the biggest things that I feel like will come up and it's already starting to is are companies and startups that are related to um, ensuring trustworthiness of this AI technology. So like with this kind of influx of generative AI components and all these different companies, there's an increasing need for for specific people to focus on making sure the data and the models built are unbiased. this was, has always been a problem, but I think especially now with this privacy um, concern and this idea of it potentially taking over or it being really discriminatory, um, more and more companies I feel like are gonna focus on fairness and trustworthiness um, and really ensuring responsible AI and helping tech companies who are using generative AI um, use it correctly. I think that's a huge opportunity um, that that will start to emerge more and more.
0: Yeah. I mean, to your last point, I know that there's a lot of examples that have popped up recently. And just to give folks like an understanding, I recently saw this article on, on Business Insider of a an Asian MIT student who uh, she was using one of those like AI graphic tools that you were mentioning. She doesn't specifically say which one she was using, mm-hmm. but, uh, she essentially like uploaded her professional headshot and was like, make it look more professional. Oh, the, yeah. the headshot ended up, uh, making her essentially look white with like, yeah. li- like blue eyes. And so clearly there's some biases there if like right. professional means I'm a white lady with, with blue eyes. Right. And so, right. uh, definitely a lot of things to still work through on some of these models. And I definitely, um, you know, agree with you around some of the like opportunities that exist. I'd love to just sit in that for a second, because I think from my perspective, if we can kind of figure out the, um the like trademark and like content privacy line of this, because obviously there's a lot of like, very heated debates right now um, around like art and like music generation related to like AI. Um, But I, one of my theories is that like in the next, you know, a few years here, there is going to be this like rise of demand for like what I'm calling like AI producers, which are like Mm -hmm. essentially people who are very creative and can create a really cool song or create a really cool image. But their medium of doing so is like being able to use AI tools, right. In the same way that somebody could use like, uh, you know, as you described the pencil and paper could use like paintbrush. It's like, this is now a new medium you can use to like Mm -hmm. take those creative insights that you have in your mind and like a new kind of, uh, you know, canvas, if you will, to be able to, to express yourself. And so I'm curious, like, as you know, as someone who has thought about this a lot and seen a lot of different tools, like, are there any other, like really, uh, you, Unique or exciting or just like really cool jobs that like you predict or anticipate like will be out there based on some of these tools that exist or based on how they will displace other things like just any you know if we could allow ourselves to dream for a second like what do you think is going to be out there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one thing that I will say, kind of related to this AI producer type thing. Um, prompt engineering it's it's already there but it's not like extremely common right now but i feel like that's another area that will really take off in the future and when people initially hear hear that term um they think of it as just kind of like writing writing prompts for chat gpt which which seems like a a simple thing to do but i think there's lots of merit in people who who really understand these the underlying technologies um and who can kind of provide this perspective that other people who, um, let's say, were are doing a, a different um, profession, um, they wouldn't be as as good as as good in prompt engineering as people who know how the model model thinks and know what exactly would help the model um, provide better answers. Um, and I think that that goes with what you're saying with the AI producers, like having people who. Are experienced in art already, they can really um, kind of tailor their their questions and the art that they produce using technology um, in a much better way than than someone who who hasn't had um, art experience before. So I think, um, like in that regard, I feel like there might be other things, other jobs that appear, like prompt engineering. Which requires specific um, specific professionals uh, in in a focused career um, to do those jobs using the technology, um, whether that's something related to medicine, if someone who has always been in medicine, um, if they find if they find an application to develop some um, robotic surgeon that does something specific that it's not already doing now. Even if they don't have the the knowledge to actually go about building that, I think not really consulting, but there's definitely a huge opportunity and demand for really experienced surgeons to go into that area of development and kind of manage what gets developed. Um, and so I think that aspect of we have a group of developers and. We have someone who has all their life done this specific job. Um, and, And now specifically for generative AI technology, we have these experienced people going and leading these projects for something that they know that they will use. And not everyone knows that that's such a pressing need. So something like that could be interesting. I don't know if there's too much of that going on right now because people are kind of sticking to, to what they've always done. But it could be cool to, to see how that transitions um, later on, if we'll see kind of a drift of some of these like masters in niche areas, pivot to, to helping technology be made to then go back to, to their career and use those technologies.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, what you're saying resonates so much. I recently attended this uh, student-led AIX education conference um, that was on a lot of different topics. And one of the keynotes was, I believe it was Stephen, not Conrad Wolfram. And he had talked about like how really the emergence of AI, really what it shows like society is that we, these tools are like really great, but nothing is, is as critical as like computational thinking, right? Like as a society, mm-hmm. we have to like make sure that we are still like learning how to think and we're we're learning right we're continuing this journey of learning because to your point what as technology continues to advance um you know we had like very complex ways to like develop code html all those things and then you had like new coding languages which made it easier and easier to do right the intention behind those languages was not that you have expert in those languages um and that being good at understanding the language was was the intention right it's like yeah it's it's important to know python but really it's important to know python so that you can use it to create products to solve problems in the world right, right. and the nice thing about ai technology is the barrier to entry to be able to use some of these generative AI models is, is easier than it's ever been right. when we think of like these like technical, uh you know, uh, products that have existed out there. Right. And to your point, if Pablo Picasso was alive today, right, mm-hmm. he may not yet understand how to use ChatGPT, right. but he understands art very well. And if you teach him, hey, all you have to do is type a sentence of what you want. Right. And then now he's taking his his his, you know, 30, 40 years of experience exactly. in the field. The, all of the the contextual knowledge, the way he's going to do, he's going to have a, a very significant advantage. So to, to yeah. your point, it doesn't reduce the advantage that current uh you know pen-to-paper artists have over non-pen-to-paper. Um, there's a little bit of a learning curve as there there is throughout life on anything, right? Yeah. But once you learn it, the advantage is, is, you now can create masterpieces. You can create content in a much faster pace mm-hmm. than you even could before because now instead of doing the physical painting, you may not have to do it, right? And there's still potentially still going to be a need for that. Uh, but, to, but I love your point around it, it, as a society, if you, if you think that the world's going to be changing because of AI, you're right. But what's still going to be in tune and in fashion is you got to learn, right? You got to yeah. be able to think, you got to be able to be able to draw from a lot of different philosophies, perspectives, and disciplines. Mm-hmm. And, and the more you do that, the more it is going to help you, uh, be use these tools to their full advantage, because what the, the, uh, The drawback of not being able to do that is you type a sentence around something you want, it gives you something, and you know, in the back of your mind, it's like, this isn't what I want, but you don't know how to articulate how to ask it to give you what you want. And the only way you can do that is if you learn, right? And if you have the context to do that, right? And that's, I think, one of the benefits of this. And that's also why um, I'm so excited for, for teachers who allow their students to use these tools in the classroom because clearly that process e- even though it may be like less words than writing an essay is mm-hmm. very difficult right because when, if you're typing something instantly and you're like well can you please give me uh you know uh an an analysis on you know, why the Roman empire fell. Yeah. You can say it like that, but then you're like, oh, but this isn't the argument I wanted, or it's avoiding this. If you don't know how to say those things, it's, it's, it's going to be subpar. And that, that is learning that still requires thought and intellect. It requires you to, to do all of those things you're going to do in other fields. And so, uh, I just appreciate that argument so, so much because again, um, we, as a society, we need to be lifelong learners we need to continue exactly. learning we need to continue exchanging thoughts we need to continue learning about a lot of disciplines this is a tool to help us uh advance society but it's not the the tool to, to the, the end all tool right
1: exactly and if i can just add one quick note about that um i know that there's a university in hong kong i think it is the hong, university of hong kong yeah um they uh they very much allow uh, the use of ChatGPT and and things within the classroom, um, and what they say is kind of this idea of the the first time a student asks um, ChatGPT to write an essay, it's about like a, a mediocre C C minus essay, but when they use their their knowledge from the course to augment this prompt and um, are able to to structure what what exactly they want um, to fill in the gaps in. For what they need for this essay, um, the model is able to perform much better. And so, I think there's a lot of merit to students who who deeply understand what they're learning, and use this as a means to to save time. Basically, they 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 need to they still have so much of they provide so much value in creating that answer. And so, transitioning from that C minus essay to an A plus essay, you need that like course knowledge, and you need a deep understanding of, of what you're learning. And I think there's, there's so many ways that humans with expertise in all different kinds of fields can, can then use um, AI to transition from their version of a C minus essay to an A plus essay.
0: So we spent a little bit of time uh, dreaming together and talking about a lot of the exciting uh, use cases of AI. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, I know that you mentioned bias uh, is something that you're worried about. I'm curious, though, if, if you think about the technology as a whole, you think about how fast it's being implemented in, in society by these big tech companies, you know, um, what are you worried about? Are you are you worried that, you know, one day in the very new f- near future these AI bots are going to take over and we're going to have a human versus Skynet scenario um and uh mm-hmm. you know the 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 machines are going to rule us. Does that not concern you? Like what 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 is your biggest concern or some of the things that you're thinking about as it relates to the risk of uh implementing artificial intelligence into into our world?
1: Yeah, so I think um it- I I've seen a lot of movies where where it shows a very real life um scenario of of what could happen when when humans kind of let these um technologies go. And I'm I definitely don't think it's impossible for for one day for a machine to be intelligent enough to to kind of slowly start to take over, at least take over the people that built it, then then go farther than that. But if And I think that's why AI education is so important. I would classify these like kind of concerns into five categories. So there's privacy concerns, um, which we briefly talked about before. Then there's also security concerns. So um, like will generative AI be able to kind of create malware and malicious software? Um, Then there's this idea of bias, which we've also talked about. So this discriminatory aspect where we're training it on biased data. With or without our knowledge, um, and then there's this idea of job displacement, um, where generative AI is so good at something that we no longer need humans to do that. And the last aspect I think of um, is kind of loss of control. So, which which ties everything else together, kind of where we we de- develop technology that's so powerful that we're just not able to control it anymore. And I think for, for all of these aspects, it's very plausible. And it's just with what we've seen so far with the intelligence of the software. Um, but there are so many ways that we can mitigate this um, this fear. And I think a part of that has to do with the people that develop the technology. So that's also where um, hiring comes into play, um, like good good hiring, thorough hiring. Being able to have people that have this background in security um, when they're developing generative AI, who, who have a background in um, kind of to avoid this idea of loss of control, um, knowing when when exactly the AI might be tending on a path towards um, learning on its own flaws, um, so being able to so tracking this technology as it's growing very closely so that we're able to kind of nip it in the bud i think that's that's very key and the only way that people can do that is if people are very aware that these problems could occur and what the implications would be so rather than i guess thinking of the huge like end game scenario of taking over the world what are like smaller things that could happen along the way that could lead to something like that in the future, and then figuring out how to stop those right away. Um, and I think all of the the five things that I named um, can very well be tracked, um, just with people being, being aware of how these things occur in technology. Um, so I think education and awareness, um, and I think that's also where laws, um, I know New York City, Recently published, like the first AI regulation, um, the LL one forty four, something like that. Um, And though there are some parts of that that I don't necessarily agree with, um, I think it's a very good way for people to be aware that there are restraints, restraints in the technology they're developing, um, and it just sows the seed in people's minds that there are limitations with what they can do. And I think that's that's good in terms of an awareness perspective. So having more laws like this, where policymakers and the government is involved and is in the know of what's being developed is very useful. And just having educators in, in schools um, teach students about AI because they'll be kind of growing up in this environment way more than, than people who are kind of like old like grandparents and, and parents right now. Um, so, so all of these aspects combined can can really help with that. So, I guess long story short, that is a scare for me, but I think that the idea of people being able to stop that outweighs the the fear.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate the the nuance to your answer, and I would totally resonate. I think along the the paradigm you laid out for us, I would say a lot of my concerns are there. I think the you know to your last point though, I think something that makes regulation so tricky i was recently listening to the the lex Fridman podcast, and he has you mm-hmm. know frequently has ai experts come on and talk to him about it is um and we don't have to go too far down this road because i'm definitely not equipped to like totally handle the conversation but it was something he said that was interesting which is um regulation can be tricky when certain countries are doing it right within the context of like their borders and it's and it's potentially like stifling stifling technological innovation where like we're able to develop ours, but then other countries aren't doing it. Right. And they're kind of saying like it's free reign to like be able to develop the tools in the way that you see fit. And then, uh, you know, potentially brings geopolitical, you know, political implications to, uh, who has the most sophisticated AI technology, how it, uh, creates advantages for their, uh, country relative to like other countries. And so, um, it's tricky. I don't have like uh clear answers for it, but I think it, it just makes for a very tricky landscape right now yeah. for, uh, for countries for governments for organizations who are kind of like trying to figure out uh you know to what extent they they want to use this technology
1: right <sighs> um
0: what advice would you offer folks who are just starting their ai journey um you you've been in this this field um you know in this mission for a while uh you know what have you learned and like what would you offer as as a step one or some of those initial steps that that folks could take
1: yeah, so I think a lot of it stems from just curiosity. Um a lot of amazing things can happen with people who are kind of self-motivated and want to to learn more despite not having um some parameters as part of their structured regular um curriculum at school. Um that's definitely what what helped me, just having this like innate um desire to to learn more. Um I and I think there are a lot of ways to to structurally do this. Um, there are so many online courses these days. Um, I personally really love uh, deeplearning.ai on Coursera. Um, Andrew Ong, the, the guy I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is the one that um, leads that. And he always invites these um, really experienced and seasoned CS, AI, NLP um, developers and researchers to his channel, or not his channel, to the course to teach particular topics. So that, I would say, is definitely a very good first step for, for a lot of people who are interested in learning about AI. Um, it's easy to understand. It's it's structured. Um, but other than that, some unstructured stuff, there's there's always uh, Kaggle, they um, which is just a website where they have a bunch of data sets. So playing around with those data sets, building your own models, um, doing the Kaggle competitions, or doing hackathons, such as this um, CMU one, I, no one really told me about this. I just kind of searched up online um, generative AI hackathons and this came up and it sounded really interesting, especially the education future of work track. So just like, just literally just going for it is is always helpful. Um, there's nothing wrong with not winning a hackathon or not winning a competition. I think what's more valuable is kind of the learnings that you get from it and the experience that you can then bring to future opportunities. Um, and so And I guess the other thing I would say is, um, just start like smaller. Um, The AI landscape is so vast and there's so many resources, so many things to learn. And that's often something that I struggle with myself is I would write this elaborate plan on all the things I wanna learn. And I would just keep writing, adding to that list and not actually doing. And so what I've learned is that I'll take, I'll look at a course or two, finish those before I start looking at anything else. Um, and I think that's, that's a good way to really get things done. Um, and there's always, it's so rewarding when you finish a course and you're able to kind of have some concrete skills that you, skills and knowledge that you learn from that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, those are some of the things that I did and that really helped me. Um, but there are a lot of ways to learn more about AI. Um, YouTube channels. Yes, a little plug about my my YouTube channel. We I I do kind of like smaller videos and also interviews with um with pioneers in this field. Um so that's also a good way to to learn more. But yeah.
0: Excellent. That's that was going to be uh in addition to the great advice you just offered, that was going to be the advice that I also offer is to make sure yeah. that they're checking out your YouTube channel. Tons of great resources there. Just as a quick plug, let's let's actually sit in that just for a quick moment here. Um what's been maybe one of your favorite uh, videos or conversations to put together on the YouTube channel? Like what was a conversation or a theme or a subject uh, that that uh, was really exciting? And tell us a little bit about that video.
1: Yeah. So um, my most popular video is on speech recognition. Um, and as any social media, you never know which video kind of takes off. Um, but I would say that video was enjoyable to make. Um, I I did like a a different kind of intro for that video, where I kind of spoke to Siri and um, kind of broke down how it was working and what it, what it was kind of doing. So, um, and I went in in depth in that video. Used animations. Um, I did a lot of research, and so I think overall that was that was pretty enjoyable to make. And um, having just some variation within my within that video in specific was was nice. So, I think that was my one of my favorite videos. Um, other than that, I um, actually did an interview for my channel today. Um, it hasn't been published yet, but um, I had a really good conversation today with uh, it actually kind of has to do with some of the the topics that we've been talking about, this idea of like trustworthiness and, and um, uh, unbiased uh, models and things. And so it was a good learning experience for me. Um, and that's one of the things I, I really like about. Making videos for my channel is—I I learn a lot from the people I talk to, um, and and kind of getting their advice and insights, um, and their journey. Uh, and and yeah, as I as I said in the beginning, it's it's always so gratifying to be able to hear from my viewers some of the things that um, they learned and and the ways that it it helps them uh, actually build and deploy some technology. Um, I heard that quite a few times for the speech recognition video in specific. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was a, a good video. And then the interview today was a nice conversation I had um, for the channel.
0: Well, yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to check out that video. And and uh, you better believe I'm going to be linking your YouTube channel to uh, this episode mm-hmm. so that folks who are interested in uh, really doing a deep dive into AI and learning more about it. You don't have to go uh, Google search and resources. We got Ash- uh, Ashka's channel right here for you to be able to check out and to uh, <laughs> check some videos out on. And so uh, Ashka, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I, I feel like we learned so much from your perspectives. Um, really looking forward to just following your journey at UPenn and like all the amazing things you do after that. So thanks so much for joining the conversation today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was amazing speaking with you um, and and kind of getting to talk through all these different um, topics. So thank you again and um, looking forward to to staying in touch.
0: Thanks for listening to the AI Education Conversation. Give a follow, rate, and review wherever you listen. For all show notes and to share your thoughts on today's episode, check out the AI convo on Twitter. See you next time.